Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. You have you ever been miserable? Just in absolute pain, anger, and frustration. I remember as a four-year-old, uh, we were eating chicken that night, and I don't know what set me off, but no one, no one. Uh, Stopped me. I ran to my bedroom. Uh, there were bunk beds at the time. I was on the bottom bunk, and I was so angry. I had a big mouthful of white meat chicken, and I was so angry and frustrated. I spit it out behind the bed. Okay, have you ever been so frustrated and hurt? You're in misery. Mercy is when someone comes to your side. I want to let you know that that chicken stayed there for two years and turned into beef jerky, a biohazard. Yeah, I, I found it years later, and it, I go, I remember that moment. It just stayed there. Yeah, don't, we weren't total trash, but I'm just saying, under the beds did not always get cleaned. Mercy is when someone come, comes to your side, puts their arm around you, helps you alleviate the pain and the suffering. It's about 10 years ago that I was blindsided uh, in the ministry, and I was slandered to my staff and even to my wife. Uh, The motives of my heart being judged and uh, assumed and then exposed in front of my people. And it was terrible. It felt horrible. And I want to let you know that most of my staff and the entire elder board came to my side. And I remember something specifically what Tom Tompkins, he's on vacation. I don't know that he has reception. He might listen to this later. Tom, thank you. He said something uh, to this effect. Sure, he may be a flawed and deficient pastor, but he is our flawed and deficient pastor. And for whatever that's worth, whether all of the slanderous accusations were true, I was not disqualified by them. And the elder board saying, yeah, and he is our flawed and deficient pastor. That's mercy. To come alongside someone in their misery and help in their suffering. I have been the recipient of mercy. I love receiving mercy. I'm not always the best at giving it to others. Today we continue in our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, and we get to Beatitude number 5, which says, Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful. Why? Well, they are blessed because they are blessed. It's the flourishing way of life, but in addition to that, these are the ones that will receive mercy. This is not talking about salvation and conversion. Jesus is talking about the person, the child of God that displays and manifests mercy to others will experience more new manifestations of mercy for their own suffering as well. I have a few definitions. This one is from Strong's. He was the best and most succinct as to what this Bible term, this Greek word, Elias, is the word. What does this word mean? And Strong says it's kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. And then in my study and reading a commentary by Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this that I really, really appreciated. Grace is different. 
grace is especially associated with men in their sins, mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. In other words, while grace looks down upon sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin. So that mercy really means a sense of pity and a desire to relieve the suffering. This is Pastor Jim's shortened definition. Mercy. It is an active compassion that seeks to help the miserable and the afflicted. An active compassion that seeks to help the miserable and the afflicted. The story's told of a man walking down a street and he actually fell into a hole. And he finds himself at the bottom of this dark hole and the sides are so steep and slippery he cannot get, find his way out of the hole. And so he, he senses a, a person walking by and he calls out and says, hey, I'm in this hole, help me. And the individual happened to be a dark doctor. And when he heard it, he wrote a prescription and threw it down the hole. Next person came along and it was a priest. And so the man in the hole said, father, I've fallen into this hole. I can't get up. I can't get out. Help me. And so the priest wrote out a prayer and threw it down the hall. Third person came along, and it just happened to be one of his friends. And he said, Joe, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me out? When suddenly his friend Joe jumps down the hall with him. And he says, Joe, are you a fool? Now we're both down the hall. And Joe responds to him and says, yes, but I've been here before, and I know the way out. Mercy jumps down holes with others. That is a picture of what it means to be the merciful. It feels something. It is not devoid of emotion. It actually feels something in the heart that grieves the person, but it's not just left as a feeling. It moves in action toward the one that it feels for. Mercy moves, and can I tell you, it is not natural. It is not normal, and it is not of this world. In fact, Rodney Stark, Christian historian in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, gives us a picture about the ancient world, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and says this about mercy. It says, the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect, and pity as a pathological emotion. Because mercy involves providing unearned help or, re or relief, it is contrary to justice. Now, actually, it is not contrary to justice, but it was thought to be contrary to justice. In justice, we all feel it, Christian and non-Christian alike. People have this intrinsic sense of justice. But mercy is something more, something else, something different, something better. He goes on to say, as E.A. Judge explained, classic, classical philosophers taught that mercy indeed is not governed by reason at all. All humans must learn to curb the impulse. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. Pity was a defect of character, unworthy of the wise, inexcusable only in those who have not yet grown up. And into this ancient world, a ruthless, savage ancient world, God speaks. You know, God 
has always been merciful. And God has always called his people to mercy. It's Hosea 6, 6, and we'll see a little bit later. Jesus actually quoted it two times. Where God said to his people, For I desire steadfast love. When this was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek in the Septuagint, it's the exact same word, Elias. Loving kindness, steadfast love. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. He goes on to say, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Mercy, even more important than sacrificial temple worship of Yahweh. Yes, even more important than the temple and the tabernacle. Mercy more than sacrifice. For the one who has experienced mercy from God, it must be the new normal. We are the people of God and we are the people of Jesus. And this is what we believe Jesus expects. It's really logical. It flows out of the first five Beatitudes that we're studying, and if you would allow me to, I'd love to walk you back through them and show them, show you how this is the logical, this is like the only thing we can do if we actually experience and live out the attitudes of the first four Beatitudes, the mercy will be the logical expression of our lives. This is how it works. In Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the gateway beatitude. We are humble. We are not self-sufficient, not self-righteous. We don't look to the good things that we do. We don't look to comparison of others. We actually say, look at me. I am a wretch. I have nothing to offer God to make up for my sinful actions and my sinful heart. I am wrecked. I am emotionally bankrupt. And Jesus says, aha, this is the gate to the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second one that comes in the next verse. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Our sin doesn't, we just don't go, no, that's no big deal. And I'm still struggling with sin. It makes us sad. More than any of the other things in this world that we could mourn and feel sad about. The greatest sadness is I'm not who I was meant to be, not who I could be, not who I should be. And I look at that, and it makes me mourn. And Jesus says, ah, good, you shall be comforted. He goes on to say, blessed are the meek. Those are the ones, they might have some power, they might have some authority, they might have an argument, some intellectual capacity to argue, hey, I'm not as bad as I could be, I'm not as bad as the next guy. They are meek. They come under God's authority. And when people say bad things about them, they say no contest. Right now I could blow you up. I could flex on you and destroy you with an argument and make you look stupid. But that's not my agenda. That's not even in my brainwave activity. Meekness does not do that. Meekness says guilty is charged. So you have poor in spirit. You have the mourning and you have the meek. And then you have... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's not enough to just say guilty is charged, no contest. I'm not a good person. I long to be more than who I am. I long to be more like Jesus. I'm hungering and thirsting after a righteousness that I don't have in and of myself. And Jesus says, they're blessed because they shall be filled. Now look at the inward attitudes of heart. These are the kind of people that are shown mercy by God. And the exact next verse say, blessed are the merciful, 
you've been shown so much mercy. You got a, a clear vision and understanding of who you are. And you recognize you got nothing. Everything that you get, got, even your very breath, is a gift from a, a benevolent, gracious, kind, and loving, merciful God. You've been shown so much mercy. And you get it if you understand and own those first four. How then could you turn around and offer anyone else anything but mercy? It flows right out of these. And I believe that Jesus' point is clear. We've been shown so much mercy. How can we be anything but merciful toward others? And Jesus says, and these, these ones, these merciful, these mercy givers will be blessed. Blessed. For they shall be shown additional measures of mercy from God himself. Okay, this is at the, the point of our bottom line. And you see you just got two big blanks. And I'm going to fill them up with a bunch of words, okay? And this is in part for the kids. I want it maybe, hopefully, to be a little bit sticky. But, but here's what I believe our bottom line is from Matthew 5, 7. Blessed or happy, happy are big-hearted helpers. Happy are big-hearted. There's an emotional quality to it, but there's an action to it. They're big-hearted helpers. Those are the flourishing ones. Those are the ones that we should be jealous of. Those are the ones who have made it. Those are the ones who should be congratulated and not the haughty, hardened haters. This world looks to the, to the arrogant and the wealthy and the emotionally detached. They are able to afford an island and fly on their private jet to Pleasure Island and shut out the cares of the concerns of the world. Maybe even bring some people along to abuse them on the island. But as long as no one knows about it, it's about me. Haughty, hardened haters. And the world drinks the Kool-Aid. Whoa, wouldn't it be awesome to be so powerful and so wealthy, so detached from the sufferings of humanity? And Jesus says, you got that all wrong. Happy are the big-hearted helpers, not the haughty, hardened haters. So here's the deal. By definition, by definition, it takes two parts. You can have a big heart and be sedentary. You feel all kinds of feelings and you do nothing. You leave it to Uncle Sam. You leave it to the church to someone else. Someone's going to come along and help that person. I don't need to. No, mercy means that you not only have a big heart, but you also have big hands that you lend to help others. So by definition, if you cannot point to examples in the real world from your life with mercy, you cannot call yourself merciful. Okay? We need real life, real life expressions of big hearts. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to point you in three directions, three people groups that we are to show mercy to. To have big hearts of compassion and hands that get involved and lend help. So here's the first one. Mercy moves me to serve those who suffer. So this is general. 
And by the way, this is your Christian heritage. That first thing that I read about ancient Rome and, and Greece, first century church turned it upside down overnight, instantaneously, put a stop to it. Back to Rodney Stark, he says this, In the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. Foremost was the Christian duty to alleviate want and suffering. It started with Jesus' words from Matthew 25, where he says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, you did it to me. So Jesus shows up in the form of misery. And when we move out in compassion to touch those in misery, Jesus says, I identify with them so closely that I are they and they are I. Sounds funny, but I think it's good English. Don't check me. Jesus identifies with the plight of the miserable that when you touch them, and he doesn't give any caveats. He just says, you find misery. Move toward it in compassion and do something about it. It's me that you're serving. And then we see the entire piece of church history from the first, second, and third century. Stark continues, in 251, the bishop of Rome wrote a letter to the bishop of Antioch in which he mentioned that the Roman congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. One church, 1,500 people in distress that they were supporting. This was not unusual. In about the year 98, Ignatius, bishop of Antioch, advised Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, to be sure to provide special support for widows, the distinguished Paul Johnson says, quote, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire for which the most part lacked social services. So when calamities struck, there were people who cared. In fact, there were people having the distinct responsibility to care. All congregations in the first, second, and third century had deacons whose primary job was the support of the sick, infirmed, poor, and disabled. That's our history. They took it directly from the words of Jesus and instantly put it into action in their church structures. How to be mercy givers. And not only to their own people, but to those outside the church also. Here's three kinds of suffering souls that I can just break this down even further. The first off is those who are self-inflicted fools. They're sinful and their pain is self-inflicted. I'm going to tell you, this is where I, I will struggle. Like you did it to yourself, dummy. You made your bed, now lie in it. And we don't, we don't want to unnecessarily keep throwing money at a person who's a fool, but we have compassion. We want to help the fool not be foolish. So even when people do it to themselves, there's... There's a kind of compassion that moves toward them. It's called mercy. We have an example of this in John chapter 8. I'm keen, let, let's be honest. The woman caught in adultery did it to herself. She really was doing that. She really was undressed. She just got caught. And the law of Moses says you got to stone her. 
And what does Jesus do? The only one that's authorized to throw the first stone, he distracts them and leads their eyes, their painful stare away from her, starts to draw in the dirt. We don't know he's drawing for sure, but we know that it absolutely turned the eyes of shame away from her. We know that for sure. And as they begin to leave and they clear the scene, Jesus offers her these words. Woman, where are your accusers? She says, nowhere, my Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This was self-inflicted. I know we can talk about culture and maybe she's forced into it by prostitution or, or uh, any number of things. I know, but, but look, just look at it. You know, the obvious on the surface. She was in sin. And yet Jesus shows mercy to this one. Here's the second group of people. Those who just live life in, in the words of, of Solomon in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. Life is hard. This ain't heaven. We're east of Eden. This is before the return of Christ. Life is hard. We're all going to be disabled and infirmed by old age and death. We are all on the path to disability. And many of us, or most of us, already have some form of disability as it is. And you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. He wasn't just proving himself to match the profile of the Messiah. He was, in fact, doing that. But he was moved with compassion to meet their needs, to heal their broken bodies, to cast out evil spirits, to feed their hungry stomachs and their hungry hearts. Jesus ministered to everyday people that lived life under the sun and had needs, moved with compassion. So the one that does does self-inflicted foolish things, that we get triggered and say, oh, you make me so angry, or people that are just living life, and it's just a low-grade misery, were moved in their direction to help them. Thirdly, are the heroes of faith. Paul the Apostle told his his prodigy, Timothy, all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And guess who suffered persecution more than anyone? Paul the Apostle. I think that it's heartbreaking to read 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's final epistle to anyone that's Scripture. And it is such a heavy and sad and victorious letter. In, in this second Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, everyone has deserted me. The guy that's led thousands of people to faith in Christ and planted hundreds of churches around the Roman Empire is alone and betrayed. And he says these words to Timothy. Second Timothy 1, 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phlygius and Hermogenes, May the Lord grant, grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Other Christians go, whoa, distance yourself. There's a scandal. Paul's in chains in prison. Let's not do, get too close to him. But Onesiphorus, he goes, I'm unashamed. That's a good man. He's in prison. I'm not afraid to be identified with Paul. Paul goes on to say, when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Look at that emotional quality of compassion. I want to find him. I want to help him so much I'm actually doing something. And an earnest search is undergone because he has such mercy on the aging apostle that is being betrayed and forsaken. He longs to minister to this 
good man of God. And then Paul says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And here's the point of walking through these categories. It doesn't matter who they are or whose fault their suffering is, even if it's self-inflicted. The merciful are moved with compassion and seek to alleviate the suffering of those who suffer. So let me ask you, who's in your path? Your workplace, your household, your extended family. They're in the pit. They're in the hole. They're in a predicament. Can you feel their pain? Can you identify with their suffering? Are you cool? Hey, man, I, I compassion fatigue. I cannot, I can't handle it. They drive me crazy. Or can, can you go there in compassion? This is the merciful that Jesus esteems. Can you reach out to them? Can you jump down the hole with them? Can you remember that you were down there once yourself? It moves me to serve those who suffer. Here's secondly. Secondly, mercy moves me to forgive those who hurt me. I know it triggers our sense of justice, and I want to I let you know, mercy is not contrary to justice. This is, does not mean we sweep it under the rug and, and go, la, 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 it didn't hurt me. You're going to eventually have to see a counselor or therapist if you keep doing that, and you probably should anyway, like before you do that. It hurts. The cut is deep and bloody and running. Your heart is broken. They damaged you. They took something from you. They violated you. Be honest about that. Don't, ah, what a big deal. I forgive them. No, you feel it. It's horrible. But then you act like Jesus. And then you act like Stephen. What do I mean? You remember it was Jesus when he's being crucified and the Roman soldiers are gambling for his clothes right in front of him. At least go behind the cross. Don't mock him, open, put him to open shame, his naked body broken and bleeding. You're gambling for his clothes, and what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's, he's acknowledging the pain and the shame. It hurts deeply, and yet he's saying, forgive them. What did I mean by Stephen? You know, it was a few years later that Stephen was... Uh, in a preaching opportunity. Who was Stephen? He wasn't even an apostle. He wasn't a bishop. He wasn't a, a, a minister. He was, he was a deacon, one of the original seven. But now he is a great evangelist, and he is preaching a magnificent sermon that really ticks everyone off, and it enrages them. And so they drag him out of the city, and they start to put him to death. And the scripture says in Acts 7, 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. These are his enemies that are ending his life. And it hurts in seven different ways. It hurts. And yet he says, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Can I ask you, who's wronged you? Who's violated? Who, who's taken something of you? Maybe it's your reputation. And it hurts. And you stare that in the face. You say, that's wrong. 
Man, I worked for a youth pastor, and one time I heard him say, I don't get angry, I get even. I'm like, you were joking, right? He didn't blink. Did he read the Bible? I mean, I love this guy. He's a Christian. It's just not what mercy does to its enemies. I don't get angry. I forgive. It's a better picture. There's a, a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18 after talking about the sinning brother and how to make that, that right. And he tells a story of, of uh, a servant that owed an enormous debt to the king. A thousand talents. It's a fixed cost. A talent was a, a measurement of gold. In today's economy, it would be over one billion dollars. And the king said, hey, I need my money back. And the servant could not pay that money back. He goes, I don't have it. He's going, I'm going to have to throw your wife and your kids in, in prison. Because it's a crime. And he begs and pleads for mercy. And the scripture says, Jesus says, he felt compassion. He felt compassion. And because of that, he released the servant's debt. Let him go free. Well, about the same time, the servant ran into a fellow servant that owed him a hundred denarii. By way of comparison, a denarii is approximately a day's wage for a day laborer. Less than minimum wage. In the first century, it's about a penny. And so we have a debt anywhere from a dollar to a hundred dollars. A hundred denarii. And he says, you need to pay up. The one that got forgiven the billion dollar debt says, you need to pay up right now. Or I'm going to throw you and your whole family in prison. And he says, oh, please have mercy. I'm going to pay it back. I just don't have it right now. And he just is ruthless and he throws him in prison. And when word gets back to the king, he says, you wicked and worthless servant. How dare you what I have forgiven you. And you would go out and be so punitive. So I'm going to actually discipline you and put you in prison now. Jesus is telling this to his people. To his people that mercy you, we're going to get in trouble. Those who hurt us, we've been forgiven so much, we are to forgive others also. Now, you want to see something cool? Kids, anyone like to go fishing? Andy, do you take them fishing? Yeah, you better, because I know you. We go fishing. Okay, you, ever, you know how fishing hooks go from like size 12, that's like a trout hook, and they get, they get, as the number gets smaller, the hook gets... Bigger, that's right, good, who said that? You're an outdoorsman. So you get down to, when I was a kid, a size four or two hook in the tackle box, like, whoa, we going after monsters? No, we're just going bass fishing. But then you actually go into the negatives, which is the number, a slash, and then a zero. Okay, so the biggest I ever was around as a kid was a two hook. This is a 28-aught hook, a legitimate 28-aught hook. Hey, you want to play with this? And I got two of them. It, it is sharp. It's a circle hook. There's a reason for that. Great, great technology. Pass it around to kids, but don't, like, stick it in your mouth yet. Here's the deal. You and I, you and I are born into, into this world on a God-sized hook for a God-sized debt. Got it? I mean, you, I can't get a hook bigger than this. We are born into the world with a God size, on a God-sized hook with a God-sized debt. 
And the gospel is this, that Jesus pays for this with his own life. He is on the hook for our sins. And when we express faith in Jesus, we call on him, he releases us. We are off the hook. And then what do we do? Listen, I don't want to make light of whatever horrific things have been done to you. I mean, horrible things. And guess what? They sh- it should be reported to the sheriff. They should go to prison here on earth. I believe in justice. But as for your heart, you're carrying around a size 10 hook, and yet you're acting like, oh, oh, I can't let it go. Oh, and you're exhausted. You're exhausted. Mercy means you let them off the hook. Let them off. Because I've been let off God's hook, I will let them off mine. I'll forgive those who have hurt me. So it moves me to serve those who suffer. It moves me to forgive those who have hurt me. And then one last thing. It moves me to intentionally pursue unbelievers, pre-believers, non-believers, non-Christians in love. These are not our enemies. These are people for whom Christ died. These are people that he says, could you please be kind to these souls that you're around? Could you please stop mocking them? Could you please show some mercy toward them? This is what it's said in Matthew's gospel, and actually he's writing about his own conversion. Matthew's talking about his own call. And right after Jesus calls Matthew himself, who is a publican, a tax gatherer, he invites him to his house for a big party with sinners. And this is the scene that we read about in Matthew 9. Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes what verse? Hosea 6, 6. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then Jesus says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the heart of Jesus. One illustration from the Old Testament, Jonah. God says, go to Nineveh. He goes the other direction. God kind of puts him on the hook, right? He ends up in Nineveh and says, "Here's how you have to do this. Eight words. Yet in 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. And in those eight words, the greatest awakening, the greatest revival in the Old Testament is sparked. And guess what Jonah's doing? Sitting on a hill overlooking Nineveh, hoping and praying that God leaves them on the hook. He's hoping and praying that fire from heaven will fall and destroy the Ninevites. You know what Jonah is? A haughty, hardened hater. Don't be a Jonah. And in contrast, we have Jesus. That when it's Jesus' turn to sit on a hill above a city called Jerusalem, almost to his crucifixion, 180 degree difference from Jonah. And he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to this. How often I would have gathered you as a, as 
Together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So Jonah gets a revival in repentance and is angry about it. And Jesus longs for revival in repentance and doesn't get it and groans it. Jesus was a big hearted helper. Which one will we be? Because the spirit of Christ in us is the same spirit of compassion for those outside the faith. That we would groan and yearn for their salvation. Can I ask you, who in your social networks, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your relatives, needs God's saving mercy? Just one. Can I invite you, one message on Messenger one text message, can we get coffee this week or soon? That you just reach out to one this week and invite them out just to care for their life and catch up on what's been going on in their world. Take one step out of mercy toward one outside the faith. Because happy, happy are the big-hearted helpers, not the haughty-hardened haters. Let me end here. Where are you at concerning God's mercy today? Are you still on the hook? Do you know for sure you've been released from a God-sized hook because of a God-sized debt? Can I just invite you this morning to put your faith in Jesus who has already paid the debt that you owe and is ready to let you off the hook? Minister Donald Barnhouse, in his, his book on Romans, said this, When Jesus died on the cross, all the works of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historical fact. God has now had mercy upon us. All the mercy that God ever will have on man has already been had when Christ died. That is the totality of mercy. There could not be any more. The fountain is now open and it is flowing and will continue to flow freely. Will you come to the fountain of God's mercy and be released and let off the hook? And this is what Romans 5 says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This, my friends, is mercy. Father, in Jesus' name, we have an ongoing need. We, many of us have received your ultimate and eternal and infinite mercy. Some of us have not. We have yet to drink of the fountains of mercy. Lord, would you please stir and move. Bring us to mercy. And then those of us who have had mercy and experienced it. Lord, how can we be anything other than the merciful? And then, Lord God, thank you for your kindness and goodness. You call us to mercy. You will actually discipline us if we refuse to show it. But Lord, we would have all of your blessing and blessedness. So teach us mercy that we might receive mercy as well. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.